0: Ah, good morning it looks like I get some extra time as uh, I was due to be up here at half past 10 and I think it's now just 20 past or so but uh, I'll share that windfall with my dear brother lindsay who's going to speak after me it's a great privilege to be back here at midland park and to see you all and it's uh, a great honour as well to be with the brethren who also have come by invitation to speak to us over the weekend We know them and love them in the Lord and are very confident that the Lord will give help as we seek to uh, share and teach the Word of God amongst the dear people of God this weekend. Now I want to uh, begin this first session please by reading in John's Gospel, chapter 1, John's Gospel and chapter 1. And we're going to read in John chapter 1 at verse 35. John 1 and verse 35. Again, the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Verse 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Mark's Gospel, please, chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 and verse 16, now as the Lord Jesus walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And for a final reading, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. Verse 1. when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering, said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night, and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net broke. And they beckoned unto their partners which were in the other ship that they should come and help them, and they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now we do trust that in his goodness, God will bless the reading and also our study of his good word today. As the Lord gives help this morning, it's my desire just to bring before you some very straightforward and simple lessons from these verses, and yet they will be very profound in their effect, I trust. It may be at a superficial reading that you think we have simply read of the one occasion recorded with slight differences by three different gospel writers. But these three occasions were all separate. They took place in a period of time that probably spanned a little over a year and they mark the Lord's dealings particularly with Peter. The Lord is going to have dealings with this dear man on three separate distinct occasions and that's what we've read and that's what we want to think about. In John chapter one for we've read them in their chronological order In John chapter 1, we read as far as the scripture record is concerned, the first time that Peter and the Lord ever met. And it's lovely to see that when Peter was brought to Christ, he was brought to him by his brother. Now as you read of Andrew, you'll read of him three times in John's Gospel, here in chapter 1, again in chapter 6, and again in chapter 12. And on each occasion that you read of Andrew in John's Gospel, he's bringing someone to Christ. He brings his brother in chapter 1. He brings a young boy with his loaves and fishes in chapter 6. And he brings Gentiles who would see Jesus in chapter 12. Andrew was a man used to bring people to Christ. It's not very long in the biblical record until you don't read of Andrew and Peter, you always read of Peter and Andrew. And Simon and Andrew. And even when there's James and John, the sons of Zebedee included, Andrew always brings up the rear. He's the last to be mentioned. And yet, humanly speaking, without Andrew, we wouldn't have had Peter. Without Andrew, that great crowd of 5,000 men, besides the women and children, wouldn't have been blessed. Without Andrew, The Gentiles who wanted to see Christ in John chapter 12 would never have been brought. My dear brother, my dear sister, let's begin the conference very, very simply and very earnestly by saying this, that perhaps the greatest work you can ever do for the Lord is to bring people to Christ. And who can ever measure this side of eternity, the value of your quiet, simple unsung, unrecognized work of bringing another to the Lord Jesus. Peter is going to come to the forefront. Peter is going to be the spokesman of the disciples. Peter is going to be the one who boldly addresses the men of Israel in the early chapters of the book of the Acts. But Peter was brought to the Lord by his brother. And just as John Baptist was going to fade into the background so that Christ might be prominent there are certain servants of the Lord who will never have prominence publicly the names won't be in the magazines and the names won't be on the lips of people at a supper table but my young brother my young sister perhaps the greatest work you can do for God is to bring another soul to Christ and who knows what God may, might make of that person for his glory. I don't think it's melodramatic. I don't think it's overstating the case. That if, in the goodness of God, you are instrumental in bringing one soul to Christ, yours has been a worthwhile life. It's been a worthwhile service. You've brought eternal fruit. For the glory of God. We don't all have the same personalities. We don't all have the same physical abilities. But one thing we can all do is go and tell what great things God has done for us. So, whatever that sphere of service might be, you might not feel competent or brave enough perhaps to stand and make a public declaration in the workplace or at the college. But Andrew began his ministry in the home. He began it with his brother. And he brought his brother to Christ. And look what God made of that man. So there's a first simple lesson. The thing I want to bring out to in John chapter 1 is this. When Andrew brought his brother to the Lord Jesus, verse 42 says, and when Jesus beheld him. You know, the detail of Scripture is beautiful. It's great to have the wide-angle view, and it's great to be able to see the sweeping doctrines of the New Testament, and of course, these things are all essential and precious. But as you're reading your Bible day by day, don't necessarily... I'll be careful how I say this. But don't necessarily set yourself a must-do target of two or three chapters. Now, if you can read through the whole Bible in a year, great, you do it. And do it often. Do it every year. But at the same time, sometimes just pick up your Bible and sit for a moment and ponder each phrase that you're reading. Easy to overlook this, isn't it? Jesus beheld him. Now, if you were to pick up your concordance and look at that word, well, you don't do that these days, you look on your phone, don't you, or whatever it is. But anyway, you look at that word, and you will find that it is the same word the Spirit of God used at the beginning of our reading, and there we read in verse 36, and looking upon Jesus as he walked. Do you suppose John just glanced at the Lord? Do you suppose he was speaking to these two disciples? One of them was Andrew, We suppose the other to be John, the writer of this gospel? Do you suppose that, that John Baptist was speaking to these two men, and or oh, he just glanced, he saw, "Oh there's, there's the Lord Jesus going by." And then he went back speaking, looking upon Jesus as he walked. And John wasn't just looking, he was gazing. In fact, that's how the word is translated in Acts chapter 1. When the Lord Jesus ascended bodily up out of the gaze and the sight of those who were with him. And the angel came and said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? You imagine if in the break you're outside and there's a, a bunch of you all talking. And then suddenly one of them is just bodily ascends up into the heavens. You think you just give it a little glance and go on speaking? Their mouths are open, their jaws have dropped, they're, they're gazing. And the angel says, well, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus shall so come again in like manner, even as ye have seen him go. And John gazed upon the Lord Jesus as he was walking. And Jesus beheld Peter, gazed at him. Depending on who the person is who's gazing into your eyes, sometimes uncomfortable. It might surprise you to know that when I was a boy, I was occasionally bad. And uh, usually just before the rod of justice was applied to the seat of learning, my father might gaze down at me. And it was an uncomfortable experience. He was contemplating what he was looking at. And the Lord is gazing at Peter. It's the first time, as far as the biblical record is concerned, that these two have met. They didn't shake hands, they didn't do that kind of thing. But the Bible simply says that his brother brought him to Jesus and when Jesus beheld him, So he's looking at him, weighing him up. Now, he's the son of God. He knows all about Peter. But he's weighing him up, searching him. And Peter's doubtless getting uncomfortable under the steady gaze of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord says, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonas. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Let, let's look at these two little expressions. The Lord gazed upon Peter, and he said, Thou art, thou shalt be. Peter's going to change. Really, what I'm seeing here in in this meeting of Peter with the Lord Jesus is really the picture of when you and I got saved by the grace of God. When we put our trust savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ, a divine assessment was being made. Thou art, thou shalt be my young brother, my young sister particularly, when God saved you, you were changed. And you will be changed. And you will continue to be changed. And I wonder, when the Lord Jesus is gazing upon Peter, he's not looking at him and thinking, now what can I make of this man? He knows that. But perhaps as he's gazing upon Peter... The Lord is thinking of all the experiences that Peter's going to go through as the transition is made from the man after the flesh, Simon, to Peter, a man who's a rock, stable, trustworthy, established. And there's many, many experiences. That Peter is going to have to learn in the school of God. And it all begins that very moment when his brother brought him to Jesus. And a divine assessment is being made. And doubtless the Lord is looking upon Peter as well with compassion and with concern. The Lord knows all that he's going to take Peter through to make that transition happen. Peter, thou art and thou shalt be. Young brother, young sister. The older ones won't mind me specifically in this session of the ministry, please. Addressing particularly the younger believers. It's not that it's not for you older ones, but it is particularly for younger ones. You are something right now. And the Lord intends to make you something else. And the moment you got saved, you were enrolled into a training program. The moment that you got saved, you were enrolled on the register of the school of God. And along the way, as the one who is your Lord and your new master, as he seeks to train you and teach you and mold you and eventually use you, there will be times when you don't want to happen what he wants to happen. You'll resist. You'll buck the trend. You'll perhaps even be like Peter was, even in his mature years. You remember that when the time came for him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that was just a step too far for dear Peter. The sheet was let down. As Peter, before his lunch, dreamed and he's thinking... What is this? And this sheet is let down and there's all this manner of unclean beasts upon it and the voice from heaven says, Peter, arise and eat. Says Peter, not so, Lord. (laughs) Not so, Lord. Three words you can't put together. Well, you can, but they don't make sense. He's either Lord or he's not. And here's a man saying to his Lord, not so. No, Lord, this time you've got it wrong. Ah, but those of us who've been a year or two on the pathway, we can empathize with Peter 100%. Because there's been things that have happened as the Lord has trained us. And and as we look back, We can see with wonder and we can see with worship all the ways in which the Lord has led. And the number of times that we've been so dull, so rebellious, so self-minded. The number of times we've said, not so, Lord. You've got it all pretty good up until now, but Lord, you're wrong today. No, of course we never mean that. Of course we don't mean that. We would never say that. And yet we can say that. So at the very first moment that Peter meets the Lord... The Lord gazes on it, My dear young brother, my dear young sister today. Those same eyes are tenderly gazing on you. You haven't been saved just to de- deliver your soul from hell. That would be wonderful if you had even just that. But that's not the only purpose for saving you. No more than when a child is born into the world, we don't all rejoice and say, oh, that's wonderful. Here's a healthy child born. Great, let's move on. It's the beginning of something. The child has to be nurtured and weaned and cared for and educated and trained. And that's what happened the moment that you got saved by the grace of God. And I tell you, there is no more tender pair of eyes on you today There's no greater heart of compassion looking out for you and your future than the eyes and the heart of the blessed man who died to save your soul. He's gazing on you. And he's not gazing on you to know what he can make of you. He's the eternal God. He knows what he can make of you. And he knows what he wants to make of you and he knows what he will make of you. Perhaps the gaze is one of compassion and pity because he knows how much you're going to resist along the way. But he that hath begun a good work will finish it. And so Peter, right from the very start, felt the gaze of the Lord Jesus upon him. When John, the writer of this gospel, when John knew that gaze upon him in Revelation chapter 1 it was not now the eyes of the Lord Jesus here in the days of his flesh meek and merciful John now sees him in Revelation chapter 1 as the Lord glorified and he says his eyes were like burning fire and they're stripping away all that's false and all that's dross The Lord is gazing on you. He's gazing on me. Beholding. We're not just subjects of his love and kindness, saved and then left to ourselves. You'd almost think, as you read words like this, that that every one of us it's just as though we were the only one he ever saved. He's got plans and he's got a purpose. And the Lord held Peter a change is going to be made then we come to Mark chapter 1 it's a different occasion different event Uh, Matthew will give a report of it as well in chapter 4 that's the only duplication of it and uh, here in Mark chapter 1 there is another meeting takes place sometime later and now the Lord is walking by the sea of Galilee he sees Simon and Andrew his brother notice where Andrew comes in the order he sees Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea for they were fishers and Jesus said unto them come ye after me And I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Now this is what we might call a one-off occasion. They were busy at the fishing when the Lord walked down the shore and met them. And he called them and they followed him, but then they went back to the fishing. That's the order of things. So there was a one-off occasion here in Mark chapter 1 where the Lord came and interrupted them in their normal daily work and he said to them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become. So, so the work is ongoing, isn't it? Thou art, thou shalt be, I will make. They were working. And while they were working, the Lord came and he called them. He was testing their willingness to obey. Uh, Nobody likes to be interrupted in the middle of a job that they're doing, I suppose. And uh, it was while they were actually busy, casting a net into the sea. Uh, And we might have said, humanly speaking, well, surely the Lord would just wait on the shore. Let them finish what they're doing. And then when they're done for the day, say, now look, there's something I want you to do. But you see, if if there's a lesson concerning salvation in John chapter 1, there's a lesson concerning the next step for the believer here in Mark chapter 1, and it's the thought of sanctification. Now, sanctification, well, it's the word from which we would also get our word saint, and that's what you are. If you're saved, the moment you were saved, you became a saint a sanctified person. It's the word from which we get our word holy in the English language. So holiness, sanctification, is the thought of being set apart for the Lord's use. Uh, and Peter is now going to learn with his brother Andrew this particular lesson. That right when they're busy with something, the Lord comes to them and he says to them, Come ye after me. Now on the human level, if we do that, we're busy, we might just say, depending on who it is that bids us come, if it's one of the grandkids, it's usually, go and play, I'm busy. If it's she who must be obeyed, you would say, just a moment, i just finish this. Although when I was in the military and I was doing something and uh, a man with a couple of stars on his shoulder phoned down or at least his uh, personal staff officer did and said, "Um, the principal would like to see you now. You don't say, sure, as soon as I finish writing this letter. You drop it all and you go. See, it depends on the status of the one who's interrupting what you're doing, doesn't it? And here are busy men. And they're, they're actually casting a net they're not even mending the net now they're casting it it's a crucial part of the fishing process and and the lord jesus comes and he says come after me and to their immense credit mark records straightway they forsook their nets and followed him now let's get practical about it the lord wants you to do something young brother The Lord wants you to do something, young sister. And you effectively, as that, you don't, and, and by the way, I don't have to define how you know this. Because the Lord will make sure you know it. As you're reading your Bible day by day, as you're listening to ministry, the Lord will from time to time bring certain burdens upon your heart. Difficult to define, absolutely impossible to miss when they come. And when the Lord gives you a burden to do something... You don't say to him, just when I've done this. Let me finish what I'm doing now, and sure, then I'll come. He's the Lord. In some so-called evangelical circles, there's the popular idea that, that you come to Jesus... And then sometime later, when you've maybe thought about it a little, you acknowledge him as Lord. The Bible knows absolutely nothing of that at all. The moment you were saved, you were gloriously transferred from one sphere of authority, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of the Son of his love. You immediately came under the Lordship of Christ. And here the next step in Peter's experience is that that's being put to the test. Does Peter acknowledge that the man who beheld him and spoke to him some time before has now got total mastery of his life? And no matter how busy Peter is, when this man speaks and says, Come after me, Peter follows. And to his immense credit, that's exactly what he did. And a sanctified life is an obedient life. Obedient to the call of the Lord. Obedient to the word of God. Again, it's something that happens widely today that um, the truth of God is taught. And there will be those who think that they've got the ultimate get out. The ultimate wild card that lets them just live their life as they want. And uh, you can teach the word of God and people might say, Ah, but I don't see it like that. I don't see it like that. So you say, well, tell me, how do you see it? What's your take on this very clear commandment of Scripture? Oh, well, that was just for that day. That was just for the people in Corinth. Ask us, Paul hated women. You know, all these kind of arguments. The sanctified life is an obedient life. It recognizes deliberately and intelligently that Jesus Christ my Savior is Jesus Christ my Lord. He's got first claim. And as for those who would say, Ah, well, I love the Lord, but I don't need to worry about all this doctrinal stuff and, and, and all these restrictions of the Bible. Well, remember, it was the Lord Jesus who gave us a very simple, it could not be more simple, test of our love for him. If you love me, keep my commandments. And interestingly, what is today in some areas a particular battleground, The chapters 10 through 14 of the 1st Corinthian epistle. Very interestingly by the Spirit, Paul summarizes that section as he brings it to a conclusion. He says, these things are the commandments of the Lord. If you won't keep them, don't say that you love the Lord. Does that sound too harsh? My dear brother, my dear sister, that's not me speaking. All I'm doing is applying the very test that the Lord gave to his own in the upper room. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And here the apostle says, These are the commandments of the Lord. If you don't keep them, you don't love him. Not in the way you should. The Lord went on to say, If a man love me, he will keep my words. That's better even than keeping a commandment. As my daughter Sarah was growing up, there'd be occasions I would come home from work. She was a little older, you know, and, uh, and able to do things, and I would come in and sit down. I'd say, Sarah, go and put the kettle on, love, and, and make your dad a cup of coffee. She did it. She obeyed. Because I was her father, and, well, she knew the consequences if she didn't obey but you know, she grew a little older. It wasn't long before i perhaps come home from work and sit down. I'm talking with Rachel. The next minute, there's a cup of coffee next to me. She's not waiting for the commandment. She's learned from experience what would please me. She's learning from experience what I would like at that particular time. So the Lord says, here's the, here's the, the basic test. If you love me, keep my commandments. But if a man loved me, he will keep my words. David would never ever have instructed his mighty men to go and fetch water from the well at Bethlehem. He wouldn't have, had, wouldn't have had his men hazard their lives for him to refresh himself. But there was a day when he sighed and he said, Oh, that I could have a drink of the water from the well that is at Bethlehem. And there were men who were close enough to the king to hear the breathing of his heart and, and as far as they were concerned that was as good as a commandment. And They went through the Philistine lines and got the water and they fought their way back through the Philistine lines and they brought it to David and as a boy I used to have one of these little Bibles with pictures in it you know and one of, one of the pictures was a beautifully drawn picture of David pouring out this water onto the dust of the earth and I used to think as a little boy what an ungrateful wretch you know, here's his, these men just hazarded their lives and they bring him the water he wants and now he pours it on the ground. I didn't know anything about the drink offering in those days. David realized when that water came back that he wasn't worthy to drink it. Water that had cost so much. There's only one who was worthy to receive it and he poured it out as a drink offering before his God. Do you covet that kind of life? Is that your aim, dear brother, dear sister? A life that isn't just governed by commandments. Now it's good to have chapters and verses for things. But you don't have a chapter and a verse for every contingency of life. You do have biblical principles for everything. No question about that. But some particulars of our life, there won't be a chapter and a verse that says this is right and that's wrong. But the more you get to know the Lord, you'll get to know what pleases him. And if a man loves me, he'll keep my words. Do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. A sanctified life is an obedient life. And even as he's in the midst of casting a net with his brother, this man comes and he says, come after me. You don't know what it was for. That's not recorded. Well, we know the Lord Jesus said to him, Now, uh, I'll make you to become fishers of men. And there was some particular tutorial they needed that morning. There was some particular thing they needed to learn. And perhaps all they needed to learn was the blessing of when he speaks, you obey. You fighting with something? Fighting with a clear Commandment of the Word of God, and you don't want that commandment of the Word of God to cut across your life today. And perhaps you even harbor the idea that somehow you can outwit the Lord, that somehow you can get your own way after all. Well, be very careful because He might just give you your own way. But He'll bring you back onto track eventually, and it'll be with pain, and it will be with tears. And it will be with days lost. But he'll bring you back. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. But to trust. And obey. Peter's learning the lesson of sanctification. A life set apart for the Lord. The picture of salvation in John chapter 1. Sanctification in Mark chapter 1. But now there's a later event. And that's what we read about in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Again, to Peter's credit, he's learned the lesson recorded in Mark chapter 1. And uh, now on a day the fishermen... Peter and Andrew, James and John. The Lord called seven fishermen in all out of those twelve disciples. And these men are sitting and they're washing their nets. So he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's. It was Peter's boat. He's going to use it as a preaching platform. And he said to him, thrust it out a little from the land. So they pushed the boat out into the water, made it fast, and the Lord sat down and taught the people out of the ship. So far, so good. Peter's learned that what is his is the Lord's. The Lord wants to use his boat. He can use his boat. He's not using it himself at the moment anyway, and uh, besides, there's the very practical purpose that by sitting in the prow of the boat and the boat being a little offshore, um, well the voice bounces off the water. The Lord's going to be addressing a multitude of people. Peter's very happy with that. Verse 4. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. If the lesson in John 1 is salvation, and in Mark 1, sanctification, the next step in Peter's training and Peter's call is this. He's got to learn total submission. Sanctification is not necessarily submission. It's possible to live a holy life that's a miserable life. You don't really want to do it. Maybe. But but a life of submission is one that that has weighed everything up and deliberately and in a calculated way lays everything at the feet of Christ. Now, now, I've left A good bit of time in that which has been kindly allocated to me this morning. I've left a good bit just because this is a lesson I'm particularly anxious to impress upon young believers today. I speak very reverently and I speak carefully. You've got a man here. He's still a young man, by the way. I don't know how you visualize Peter. I don't know what mental picture comes into your mind when you think of Peter. He was probably the oldest of the disciples. He was probably at this time, maybe 21, 20, 21 years old. Certainly by the time uh, it came when he's got to learn another lesson uh, and the people came to him and they said, um, do, do you and your master, do, do you pay the temple taxes? Oh, oh yes, says Peter, yeah, we, yeah, we pay them. And then the Lord took him aside and he says, Peter, I want a word with you. See so in a kingdom, who pays taxes, the subjects or the king? Well, the subjects. He said, Why did you tell him that did I pay tax? So Peter has to learn that lesson, you see. And then, of course, the Lord very graciously said to him, Right now, where you go with a hook, you catch a fish. You'll find the money in the fish's mouth, and it is for thee and for me. Now, that temple tax was paid from the age of 21 upwards. The implication, at least, is that only Peter and the Lord were eligible to pay. And when you look at the chronology of the Gospels and the subsequent epistles, you will soon realize that these disciples were just young people. They were just young men. They were the age of many of you young men here today. And look what the Lord expected of them. So now speaking very reverently and carefully, here's a young man, he's a fit young man, he's already an experienced fisherman. Washed up the nets after the previous night's work. He's let the the Lord use his boat as a a preaching platform. And now the Lord says to him, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a draught. Now speaking very carefully, this was a carpenter telling a fisherman how to do his job. I mean, that's the human viewpoint, isn't it? We know he's not just a carpenter, but I mean, that's the human viewpoint. Here's a carpenter telling a fisherman how to do his job. And Peter could have immediately said, you don't know anything about fishing. There's no way that we're going to get a catch today with the sunlight on the water. We go out at night and we fish from the boat. Oh, we'll cast a net from the shore during the day, but when we take the, 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 the boat out into the deep, it's at night. That's when the fish will come. Peter's coming through this very well, you know. I, his protest, if it's a protest at all, is simply, Master, we've toiled all the night and have taken nothing. The implication being, if we can't catch fish at night, we definitely can't catch them by day. Nevertheless thy word I will let down the net now brethren if you've got a message all about the nets and the net I'm sorry to spoil it but it's technically not really a point to be made it's not a partial obedience it's not that Peter the Lord said let down all your nets and Peter says well I'll let down one I mean to be honest that's not there the thing is with with a degree of Reluctance Peter's got to learn not now just to submit his actions, but he's got to submit his mind and his will to the Lord. And I would venture to suggest, are you listening now, young brother, young sister? And and, and, and in the goodness of God you've had a great education. Many some of you perhaps still in high school, perhaps, but many of you at college, and great things are expected of you in the education system. And I would suggest that the hardest lesson that any of you is ever going to learn in the school of God in your early years is to submit your will to Christ. And to submit your mind to Christ. And I'm not saying that criticizing you. I'm showing you what the big problem is going to be. Because you are taught to reason everything. You're taught to... Uh, ask questions and expect answers and, and if things don't stock up, uh, stack up rationally and logically, they're to be rejected. Now your, your logical mind and your human reasoning is God-given and it is for the affairs of this world. Have you got that? It's for the affairs of this world you will never make progress in spiritual things on the ground of your human reasoning and of your logic. It's for this world. Let me take a simplistic, but nevertheless real example. Mary was the mother of the Lord Jesus. Fact. The Lord Jesus is God. Biblical fact the logical conclusion is that mary is the mother of god absolutely wrong just two or three steps that are logical and utterly unscriptural and and one of the greatest difficulties you're going to have to face up to and which the world as it witnesses your progress in spiritual things will always be mesmerized by is why why would you reasonably and logically give up things for Christ whom you've never seen. It made no sense whatsoever for Peter to launch out into the deep. All his experience said it was wrong. The experience of everybody else said it was wrong. But where all human experience and all human reasoning hits the buffers... Faith says, the Lord has said it and I will do it. And that actually is the greatest example of faith you'll ever read of in your Bible. If I said, what's the great chapter of faith? You would say, oh, Hebrews chapter 11. Well, in one sense it might be, but, but really the great chapter of faith is Romans chapter 4. Because as Paul is outlining and explaining how the great doctrine of justification by faith, how doctrinally it stacks up. He says, let me show you this great example of of Abraham. And Abraham is told by God that in his advanced years, he and his old wife are going to have a son. Now, there are men in this world today and they will tell you that faith is just some kind of crutch. You know, faith is just the resource of Of men and women who are too idle or too scared to use their own minds. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that Abraham thought the whole thing through. He considered his own body now dead. As far as reproduction was concerned. And he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. As far as reproduction was concerned. And he looked at his own age An inability to reproduce. And he looked at his own wife and her inability to reproduce. And logically and rationally and against all the experience of the world. It didn't make any sense. And when all his reasoning hit the buffers. He said. God has said it and I believe it. Great isn't it? And it's recorded. What God has said. He is able to perform. My young brother, young sister, get that under your belt. What God has said he is able to perform. And on this day in Luke chapter 5, the Lord Jesus called a man away from the best day's business he ever had. He obeyed the Lord. He went out and they cast the net and the net was was breaking with the strain and they had to call their brethren to come and help them and the boats were still sinking. And this would have been the record haul that was ever taken out of the Sea of Galilee. Peter, you've got it made. You are the fisherman, Peter. And that's the day he left it all and walked with Christ. Makes no sense, does it? This world and its reasoning would say, you're stupid. That makes no sense at all. Would you would you suffer a little word of personal testimony? Had I followed my natural secular career, I would have, not now, I would have been retired, I guess, but my career for the last umpteen years, I would have been, I don't know, captain of a jumbo jet. And the world would say, yeah, that's a a nice kind of fitting end to a career. And at the height of my career, the Lord called me. Now I can claim absolutely, absolutely no credit for this. Because it was a crystal clear call, and the Lord gives the grace to answer, and we left it and we walked away from it all. And I had colleagues who just were absolutely dumbstruck. How are you going to live? Man, you're stupid. You've got it made. That's what Peter had. See, my young brother, my young sister, never ever fear that by being obedient to the Lord, you're going to be a loser. Can I say that with all the earnestness of my heart? Never ever fear that by obeying the Lord, you're going to be a loser. The great rational temptation would be, Lord, I feel you're dealing with me and, and, and I feel that you want me to do something for you but Lord, I'm busy with college right now. Lord, I know that you've got something for me but I'm in my probationary years now since I've left college. Lord, Lord I, I know that you've got something for me but, but just another year and, and I'll, I'll secure that promotion. That, that's, that's me ready then. And your life will go by, and your life will go by. And I thank God for a meeting that I took one night. Can't remember what I preached about. And I stood at the back of the hall shaking hands with people as they walked out. And there was a big man, big fella, and he came. And as he approached me, I didn't know who he was then, I don't know who he is now. And that big man, he had tears streaming down his face. And he took my hand so hard I thought he was going to break it. And he said to me, young man, don't give the Lord the leftovers of your life. Give him your best. I don't know what his story is. I just don't know. I can only assume it was a man with whom the Lord had had dealings perhaps many a year before. He's calling him away. Leave it. Follow me. Perhaps he made all the sensible excuses. And he just couldn't bring himself to submit his mind and his will to Christ. And now as a mature man and verging on an old man, he realizes that his life's gone by. His opportunity's been missed. And for all I know, I don't know, he might have been a rich man. He could even be a famous man. But what will you have to present to Christ at the judgment seat? What will, you have, what will you have built for him for eternity? What will you have done for his glory? Now the Lord's not going to call you all away from professional work. He's not going to do that. But with many of you, he's going to do what he did with Peter in Mark chapter 1. And he's perhaps going to interrupt your career. And he's perhaps going to say, come, follow me. I've got something for you to do today. When he does it, you won't have to wonder about it. You'll know it. And when you know it, obey it. Obey it. It can be a tough school. But as the Lord gazed on Peter at the beginning, he knew that he, Peter's Lord, was going to fulfill what he'd said to him. Thou art, thou shalt be. And thank God he did that in the life of Peter. And he'll do it in your life as well. He's got a purpose for you. He's got a work for you. And he's going to speak to you about it. And when he speaks, God give you help to obey. May God bless his word.